Let me just talk about the fact that we are in Bible engagement again. We are in volume 10 and we are looking at session three, three with a little bit of four in it. And here's why this is so powerful. This is the last Bible engagement topic we are covering at Bridge uh, in the group setting that we've done. We started in October of 2022. We've had 30 different messages over the course of the last 10 months, and we have had 10 different scriptures. Our children have learned the same thing. Our students have had bits and pieces. Our small groups have talked about it, and it's been a great journey. I hope it's been an encouragement for you. Uh, What I really hope is that it's not the end of a journey for you. I hope it's the beginning because the purpose of doing Bible engagement was not so that we could memorize some scripture. We could have some conversations. We can understand what it means to live in community groups more than once a month or every other week. Uh, It's to build relationship with people for the body to be the body, to encourage one another and let the word of God transform us. And that's not something that we do until Bible engagement's over. We're supposed to do that for the rest of our lives because God created us to do that. He is the great architect. Amen. So that's why we do that. And I hope, I hope that there were elements of it where you said, mm, that was good. There may have been elements where you said, man, this is, this is hard. I've been there. But there are really good opportunities throughout this time. And I hope that you had those opportunities as well. So today we are talking about volume 10, session 3. The message title in little, little print up there is called The Arrival. And we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Okay, and we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes, but our faith verse that wraps up all of Bible engagement for volume 10 comes from Philippians 3.14. You've heard it the last few weeks. It says, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. You may remember me say two weeks ago that a lot of people start things. Not everyone finishes, and not everyone who finishes finishes strong. Are we willing to not just start this race to become followers of Christ, but are we looking to finish strong? Are we looking to finish where at the end of this whole thing, we can look back and Jesus can say, there were a lot of bumps in the road, right? Would you agree that there are bumps in the road that we live in? Yes, I agree with that. I believe that I've lived that, but we can still finish strong at the end. Why? Because Paul reminds us in Philippians one, that the one who began a good work in us is what? Faithful to complete it. That means what God started doing in you, he probably walked into your heart like he walked into mine and went, oh boy, I have a lot of work to do. But he's faithful to complete it, church. He's faithful. So if you think about it, last week when we were talking about faith and works, I was thinking about that a lot. I was reminded of the fact that one of the reasons why we struggle with faith and works together is because of our identity. Pastor Jeff talked about that. He talked about the idea of looking in a mirror and, and basically forgetting what you looked at. And if, we, and if we want to really get down and dirty and talk about it, when we forget who God has called us to be, when we forget who God has made us, we live like the old self. But when we remember that he washed us, that he purified us, that he redeemed us, that he made us whole, that he made us, he made us his children, there's a lot of great stuff that comes from that. And then we don't have to obey God. We want to obey God. So, finishing strong. My hope is that you will finish strong. In this series so far in volume one and volume 10, we've looked at sharing our inheritance. And then last week, we looked at next level faith. Today, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and 5, 1 through 11. And we're going to 
address what I think is one of the most significant topics in Scripture, aside from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, But we're going to look in Thessalonians. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 4. Okay, This is a growing church that Paul planted. He had to leave um, for various reasons, but the church was very much growing. The church was under persecution in some degree, and they were suffering in the beginning. And it's because when they learned about Jesus and they declared him as their Lord and Savior, there was a whole group of people there that believed that what they were saying was, there's a different king than Caesar. So people started harassing them and persecuting them. And Paul left to move on to do other things that God called him to do. But when he got report after he sent Timothy to Thessalonica, when he got report of what was happening there, Timothy came back and said, the church is flourishing. So Paul wrote a letter to them to address some of their questions, some of their concerns, some of the people that were believers had died, and they weren't sure what was going to happen to these believers. Why? Because remember, before Christ, they lived like everybody else. Before Christ, they worshipped every other god that everyone in their city would have worshipped. They needed a little clarity. So Paul writes to them and gives them a little bit of clarity as to what happens when someone passes away and what we can look forward to, which is really the whole focus of today's message, beginning in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That is a theme you see all through the New Testament. Christians don't die. We fall asleep. Why? Because the body may be gone, but the soul lives forever, and we're with Christ. So though the shell may disappear, we are still alive. We fall asleep, and he's going to do something really cool. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word... We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. A couple things I just want to mention about this. If I could summarize today's message in four words, from everything we just read and what I just tried to say, four words are just simply this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Now, the second coming of Christ is something that churches talk about. You may have heard of it. Maybe you've grown up in the church and it's something that you heard. Maybe you've watched movies, seen pictures in the uh, National Portrait Museum uh, or the Natural Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. They're actual paintings and portraits of the second coming of Christ. You can actually see that in in our capital, in the National Portrait Gallery. The truth of the matter, Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, regardless of what you know about that, I want to just start from ground zero this morning, and it's going to be such a high-level thing, but we could talk about it for weeks and weeks and weeks. I'm basically going to ask three questions, and we're not going to go there yet with our slides, but I'm going to tell you in in a nutshell what we're going to do. We're going to look at what is the second coming, okay? We're going to say, what is it? What's the significance of it? Why do I, why should I believe it? Okay, then we're going to ask, when is it going to happen? Okay. Buckle up, because I have an answer for you. I mean, with, with the advent of chat GBT, I got the answer. 
Number three would be, how should we live in light of all of this? Okay? So we're just going to touch on this this morning. My hope is that this brings and infuses in you some, not just temporary hope, but it infuses in you something that helps you see the gospel and see the creation through a bigger picture for what God hasn't just done, but what he's getting ready to do. Okay. What is the second coming of Christ and why should we believe it? What is the second coming of Christ and why should we believe it? Literally, the promise that was given to the church in the New Testament was that Jesus Christ would return to earth. Many of us know he came to earth once and he came in the form of a what? Of a man. Yes. And what was the little form of that man? A baby, that's right. He came in the form of the man. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul's very clear. He strips himself of his divine nature. He comes as a humble servant in the form of a man. He is raised, Luke 2, 52, says he was raised in wisdom and stature, and he grew, and he was encouraged, and he understood and learned truth just like a man would learn through all of those things. And yet, though he was fully man, he was still fully God, but he stripped himself of the authority that came with being God to come to us as a humble servant. And then he willingly and obediently obeyed the will of his father to go to the cross as a living sacrifice. He shed his own blood. Why? Leviticus says that the blood itself is what has life and gives life to the creation. So he shed his own perfect blood that brings life to all those who trust in his sacrifice. It's really pretty amazing. That's what he did. And he died. And he was buried. And three days went by. And the disciples were traumatized. And everyone scattered. They were confused. But then on the third day, on the third day, nobody answered the phone. On the third day, nobody picked up the phone. Why? Because the stone was rolled away and the grave clothes were neatly folded, and he was raised from the dead. Scripture says he, applied, he appeared to over 500 people over 40, 40 days, met people, spoke with people, encouraged them, and their lives were forever changed as a result of that. He met them in Acts, and he gave them instruction on what was supposed to happen. But before all of those things happened, even before he, was di- he died and he rose again, he told them that all of these things would happen, and he would still come back. Why, or what is the second coming and why should we believe it? Well, the second coming literally is the promise that Jesus died, Jesus rose again, Jesus ascended to heaven, and Jesus is coming back for his church. And he's coming back not just for his church, but he's coming back not just for all who believe, but he's going to bring justice to an unjust world. That he's going to right all the wrongs, that he's going to permanently destroy evil, and he's going to establish a universal peace by recreating the heavens and the earth. He's going to make it, if you will, the way that it was supposed to be and the way that it was made in creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What man destroyed and man polluted, God is going to remake, and it's going to be the way God always intended it. Isn't that cool? Heaven, okay, think about this. Heaven is not just a faraway place where there's clouds and angels and harps and things like that. No, God created the world to function a certain way by design and he's going in his second coming, establish what he said he was going to do, recreate that which needed to be recreated and evil will completely and forever be destroyed. And that is why the second coming is significant. Why should we believe it? A couple of reasons. Why? Jesus said it was going to happen. Okay, and if Jesus said it, I think I should believe it. John 14, 2 and 3, look what he said. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you? See what he's saying? I ain't lying. That's, new, that's, that's my translation for this morning. 
I ain't lying. I told you that I'm going to go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go away. But guess what? I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And the place I prepared for you, when I come back, I'm going to take you with me. In Matthew 24, 27, verse 27, he said, For as lightning that comes from, east, from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Again, the Son of Man himself, not only will he come back, he will come back in the glimpse, in, in, in a moment, in a, in a glimmer or a, a fleck of a, of, of a speck of light. He will come back in a moment's notice. Jesus said it would happen. There are a lot of other examples that I'm not going to read this morning, but Jesus was very clear. I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back. You know who else told the disciples that this was going to happen? The angels did in Acts chapter 1. Remember I said that he was crucified. He was buried. He rose again. He appeared to over 500 people over 40 days. And what happened after that? Right before he leaves this earth, he tells them in Acts chapter 1-8, he says, therefore, he goes, go into all the world. I'm sorry. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then he disappears. And it says he ascends back into the heavens. And then we get to verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, and it says, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. Look at verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. We either believe this church or we don't. Because you can't get around this scripture, right? Well, maybe he meant a piece of him. Maybe it means he's going to come through someone else. Maybe it means he's going to you know, show up with the Amazon truck. Like, what does it mean? No, it says the way he was taken from this earth is the way he will return to this earth. In the same way you've seen him go is the same way he is going to come back in the heaven. Jesus said the return of Christ is, is coming. And you can bank on it. The angels reminded his disciples. If we fast forwarded all the way to the last book of the Bible in Revelation, the apostle John wrote the very same thing. And here's what's so cool about this. He didn't just write it. He quoted Daniel, the prophet, who wrote it over 600 years before this ever happened. In Revelation 1, 7 through 8, he quotes Daniel and he says, Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. And then he goes on to say, so shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Why do we believe in the second coming of Christ, church? It's not just because the Bible says so. It's because Jesus said it. His disciples said it. His angels said it. I think that's like three major areas that we should be locking ourselves into to go. All these things were said that he's coming. Are we expectant and wanting to see the return of Christ? I am. I want to see it. I want to see him come back. And I'll explain why and how I'm supposed to live as a result of that. But that's the first point. What is the second coming and why should it matter to us? Here's the second question. When will it happen? When will it happen? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Does anybody really know? You know how much money has been made on books saying why Jesus was coming back? 
1995, in 1997, in 2000, in 2001, 2003. I mean, and it's always 2,000 reasons why Jesus is coming back in that, right? 2000, and the last, re, the last thing, it should say 2,000 reasons why Jesus is coming back. And then at the end, it just said, just kidding. It should say that at the end of every book. But I got your money, just kidding. You know, that's kind of what they should say. Here's what I want you to know about this. We don't know. But that's not the end of the story. Matthew 24, 36. This is what Jesus said. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Okay? He says, nobody knows. So let's not try to figure it out. But that is not where the story ends. Okay? This is really important. Just because we don't know when, the Bible is also very clear. As followers in Christ, we are supposed to be watchful and we're supposed to recognize the signs of the times as to where we're going. So we may not know the date, but we know it's approaching. And as a result of that, it should impact the way we live. Does that make sense? There's a difference in saying, well, we don't know. So, I mean, we're just going to do whatever. No, actively wait you know, think about the pregnancy. You know, I just heard this morning that there was uh, someone, uh, a family member, uh, or sorry, in our, in our church, one of our, one of our church uh, people, uh, their, their daughter's having a baby. And I was really excited. Not in the moment, but they're having a baby later this year. Okay. Doctors will tell you as close as they can on the actual date of when a baby's going to be born, right? They'll go on the ultrasound, they'll measure all that, and they'll say, here's the date. This is what we think is going to happen. They're not guaranteeing that unless they schedule a surgery. There is no guarantee that that's the date, right? But what do they do? What do the parents do in preparation for that birth? They get their house in order. They get their finances in order. They buy all kinds of clothes. If they know it's a boy or a girl, they get certain kinds of clothes. If they don't, they all buy yellow because they're not sure it works for boys and girls. They do all the things. They buy the furniture and they decorate the rooms and they do all the cool things. Why? Because they are actively watchful and waiting for the arrival of that baby, right? That is the mindset that scripture teaches us, though we don't know when it's going to happen. Jesus is very clear to say, I am showing you and I'm giving you plenty of examples to be mindful and watchful of because as these things continue to happen and as they get closer and closer together, it is like a mother giving birth to a baby. The labor pains get closer and closer and closer. And then eventually what happens? The baby is born. And that's what we're talking about. So I want to give you a few things to think about this morning about what he says and why this is important. But first, let me explain to you that I'm not just giving you my opinion. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 5, he says, Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. I love how he said that because everyone wants to know when's this stuff going to happen. He goes, we don't really need to write you about it. Verse two, he says, for, you know, quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, the disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. Verse four, but you, and I love this, but you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief for you are all children of the light and of the day who don't belong to the darkness and the light. What is he saying here in the point? Even though we don't know the day or the time, we can know the signs. Why? Because the spirit of God lives in us and we don't walk in darkness anymore. We walk in what? Light. 
So we should be able to see things and interpret things through spiritual lens, not just the physical lens around us. So what are some of the signs that God teaches us through scriptures? Here are just a few samples of things I want to talk about very briefly. Matthew 24, verses 3 through 8, he says this. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, and they said, tell us, they said, when will, this will, hap- when will all of this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. Now they're asking a question about two things, really. They're asking the question about the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus already talked about, and they're connecting it with the, the coming of the end of the age. Because to Jewish people during that time, if you destroyed the temple, they didn't have a nation anymore. And that's kind of the end of all things. But Jesus is going to talk about them separately because they are two separate things that are happening at two separate times. Here's what he says regarding the coming of the end of the age in verse 4. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Let's just stop there for a second. Just absorb that a little bit. Now, when I was a kid, I read these verses. In fact, if I go back to my study Bible when I was in high school, I have a wow written next to this with a little like stick figure with a big open mouth going, whoa. Because for me, I thought, this is it. We're here already. This is happening. Now, that was a long time ago. Do you think people who went through World War I would have seen this through a different lens that we do today. Or how about, how about a global nation, or how about the globe and everyone that lived on our planet when we went through World War II? Do you think they viewed this through a different lens that we do today? Universally, this could be seen in this way many, many times. So what I'm, I'm trying to share here, I guess, is not that, I'm not trying to share that we know that we know that we know. But if you look at the history and the trajectory of where our worlds are going and all the things that God has talked about, what you see is a a quickening of these events, a quickening of our understanding, an increasing in our knowledge and our wisdom, as Daniel has said in the book of Daniel. And these things are happening more and more frequently. So he says, all of these things are the beginning of birth pains. Jump to Luke 21, verses 25 through 33. He says this about this time. There will be signs in the sun. There will be signs in the moon and the stars. On the earth, nations will appear and will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Verse 27, at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Think about this. That last part is such an important thing for us to hear because it sounds so horrible, doesn't it? It sounds so negative. It sounds so scary. 
But, but Jesus' words at the end are, when all these things begin to happen and you see the Son of Man return, stand up. Why? Because your redemption is drawing near. Here's what we need to remember about this. All the things we're talking about don't apply to those who are in Christ. We get caught up. And I don't mean derailed. I mean we get caught up in the air with Christ. The dead in Christ rise then those who are still alive rise. We get caught up. Some of you may hear have heard the term raptured. We get caught up. We get taken. We get raptured, if you will, into that place. And the things that are getting ready to happen don't apply to the church of Jesus Christ in that time. This is what God is going to do because he's going to reestablish things. But the whole point of this is not It's not so that we walk around with an attitude of weariness and fear because Jesus is very clear when these things happen, stand up. Your redemption is almost here. How encouraging should that be? Does not apply. Then in verse 29, he says, look at the fig tree on all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see yourselves, see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Again, the message he's telling the churches today is he's saying, when you see all these things begin to happen, keep your eyes and your mind focused on the fact that though you may not know the exact moment on when this is going to happen, keep your eyes focused on the fact that it's coming. We should be mindful. Where the world spins out of control about how crazy everything is, the church can be dead on focus to say, Jesus talked about this. This is where this is going. There is an end point that we're going to, church. There is an end point. Our world is jacked up. Wouldn't you agree? This world is a mess. This world is an absolute mess. And we can look back at points in time and say, well, it's better than it was here or better than it was there. I would disagree with that. There are certain things that are good and there are better. But when you look at a lot of things in this world, you go, you know, a lot of the things we struggle with today, we do on an exponentially worse scale than people did a thousand years ago because we have more things accessible to us. The struggles that we have are real, just like everything else, and we can spread it as quickly as we want to spread in this world through the modern technology. Verse 32, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And he's not talking about the people he's speaking to. He's talking about the ones that are experiencing and witnessing these things. They're not going to just see those things happen and then they're going to just pass away. He said, no, it's going to happen like birth pains and it's going to happen quickly. The generation that sees these things are the generation that will see him return. Now, I could sit here and I could talk about different examples of things that we've seen in history things that we've walked through, things that we've talked through. And depending on what you believe about eschatology, which is the return of Christ and the end times, basically, you might have a slightly difference of opinion. But here's something that I do want to mention, and I think it's significant. There's only one nation historically that became another nation after it wasn't a nation, and that's the nation of Israel. And that happened on May 14th at midnight, 1948. Isn't it interesting? I just, I'm amazed at this. I'm amazed at the fact, when you look at World War II and the number of years, I was thinking about this this week, and the six million Jewish people that lost their lives at the hand of Hitler and the Nazi regime, how that all happened in a five-plus-year window to basically try to exterminate the Jewish people, and then three years later, they became a nation. Think about that. 
Isn't that incredible? They tried to destroy an entire people group. And three years after the war ended, they were declared a nation. You can't fight God and win. God has a plan, church. Israel becoming a new nation in 1948 was another marker that we need to look back and say, what are you doing in this world? And why is that so significant? We don't have time to talk about that this morning. But here's what I want want you to hear is that it happened and there's a reason that it happened. There's a reason that it happened. And it was shortly after that time that they weren't just recognized as an independent nation, but they were self-governing after that. And they fought, the people around them that thought it was an impossibility shook their heads in disbelief when they saw a nation created from nothing. Once again, in the same area that God promised they would have thousands of years before when they walked into the promised land under Joshua and Moses. Follow me? How amazing is this? That we're watching these things happen. That we're seeing all of these things unfold in our own lifetime. We're watching these things happen. God is up to something. And I don't know the timing of it, but I do know that we should be aware of it because when we are aware of it, it will change the way we live. And that is the last question that I want to ask this morning. And simply this, how do we live in light of all of this? How do you and I live in light of all of this? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a little insight in 1 Thessalonians 5. Just to recap what he said in verse 4 and verse 5. First, he said, But you, talking to believers, you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. Remember? He said, For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and the night. So what is he saying? You should be aware of all these things. Christians should be aware. Don't walk in darkness. Walk in the light. They're scary and they're uncertain for people that don't understand, but you should understand. Okay, so if we understand, how are we supposed to live as a result of that? Look what he says in verse six. He says, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And then at verse eight, he says, but since we belong to the day, one, let us be sober. It doesn't mean drinking and not drinking. He's saying be alert, be aware of what's happening. And then he says, putting on faith, and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Verse 9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just, in fact, as you are doing. There's two postures that we could choose to have as believers when we think about the second coming of Christ. Two postures of our heart, okay? The first posture, and this is just my best example of trying to do it, is kind of like this, okay? Now, what does this communicate to you if you don't know what I'm saying? What does this communicate to you? Fear, Fear, right? Fear. Christians Christians could choose to walk in an attitude of fear of what's getting ready to happen in our world. Am I right? We could choose. The world's falling apart. The government's all over the place. There's so much corruption. Listen, I just went back a couple weeks ago. I looked over the last 40 years of presidential uh, leadership. And you know what I found in every single one of these leaderships? Corruption. Corruption. Now, I'm not saying it's not getting worse. It's getting worse. 
it's 100% getting worse. And the enemy knows that it's getting worse. Why? Because he's up to it. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. That's why it's getting worse. You notice when Jesus showed up on the scene in the Gospels, demons started showing up all over the place? Why don't you see that in the Old Testament? Why? Because the presence of God is walking amongst us. And when you see that happen, what's been fast-forwarding in this world? We've been on-ramped in the last couple of years where we're calling things that were once not good, good. Things that were good, bad. Calling things that were godly, ungodly. Things that were unholy are now considered holy. We're messing everything up and we're creating confusion. That does not come from the, from the throne of God, church. That comes from the devil. That comes from this, this push to change the way our society sees things. And if Christians aren't careful, this becomes our posture. Lord, this place is falling apart. I am scared out of my mind. I don't know what I'm going to do. I can run. I can hide. I can prep. I can build bomb shelters if I want to. And I'm not saying if you want to build a bomb shelter. Listen, I mean, it's a cool man cave. Like, if you want to do that, I guess. It's not the fact that you build these things. It's not the fact that you collect things or you store food or whatever people do. It's the mindset and the attitude of our heart that says, how then do we live? You can prepare you can be, and we should prepare, right? I mean, when I was a little kid, I heard stories of pastors and leaders that said, Jesus is coming back before I ever retire, so I'm not going to save for any retirement, and I'm just going to charge everything, and I'm going to do... And those people today are really, really sad because they have nothing, and the government keeps knocking on their door because they owe a lot of money. That's not wise. Preparation is not ungodly, church. It's not how we prepare. It's how we process and how we live in light of that preparation. This is not the posture that God has called our church to live in as a result of that. What did Paul say here? He's saying, you have a responsibility to put on a breastplate of what? Of love. A breastplate of what? A breastplate of love, he said. A breastplate of humility and hope. These are the things that we're supposed to wear and we're supposed to carry on us because the world around us is going to fall apart. People that don't have a relationship with Christ are going to lose their minds. They will. And it doesn't mean everything's going to be like a big blender of mess. But people will be angry at God for what they see. They'll discredit God. We're watching this happen across our country, especially where people that we thought were once world leaders that loved God are now, they're, they're rejecting God. They're rejecting. We're not just talking about people that have you know, walk closer to the line of what's considered conservative or progressive. We're talking about people that have declared that they're no longer Christians. This is happening, and you know what it's doing? It's contagious. People are doing this, and we're going to see more and more of these kinds of things. And if we're not careful, and we don't stay rooted in the Word and rooted in Scripture, rooted in relationship with others, we could let fear be our posture. How many of you would agree that fear is not supposed to be the posture of the follower of Christ? Right? That is not what God has called us to be. And here's why I want you to know that. Not because I'm saying that. Not because you can say, well, I'm a fearful person, Pastor Paul. You don't know. Because Paul said to Timothy that God has not given us a Holy Spirit of what? Fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. If you're afraid and you're fearful of things, can I just be honest with you? That's okay. It's kind of scary. It's okay to be fearful. I have elements of fear in my life. I get fearful every time I have to come up here to speak every Sunday. I feel like I want to throw up when I go home. I'm in the morning, I'm going, oh, I don't know about this. Every single week, I feel like that. Every single week. That's okay. It's okay to, fear, to feel fearful about some things. It's not okay to let fear become your identity. 
That is not who God has created you to be. And if you struggle with that this morning, can I encourage you to find people around you that can speak life and not death? There are some people that will pull you up and will encourage you, and there are other people who will just keep throwing dirt on you. Don't surround yourself with the naysayers. Surround yourself with the positives. And What did he say? Encourage one another and build each other up just in fact as you are doing. Fear is not the posture. That's one of them. The second posture we could have today is a posture of open hands, open hands, and a resolve. So we can keep them close to ourselves, or we can get our hands open. And what do we do when our hands are open? You've heard me say this so many times. Open hands mean that God can put anything in, his, in our hands that he wants, and he can take anything out that he wants. And it's not just a matter of what he puts in our hands about money. It's a time. It's about our wisdom, our intellect. It's about our ability to nurture and to mentor other people. I was thinking about this just this last week over the years. There are so many people in our world that they may not need your money. They may not need your stuff. They may just need your love. Have you ever thought about that? They just might need your love, your time to just be an encouragement. I've thought about this. Like when I retire one day, I've, I've thought about this quite often, actually. You know what? I'm, one of the things I'm going to do, I'm going to go to uh, senior homes and I'm going to do worship in senior citizen homes. Why? Because there's so many people in those places that are forgotten. There are so many people in those places that are waiting to die. And there are so many people in the church today that have a gift that they could give to people like that, and they're not doing it. So I go, I can't do it all. Lord knows I can't, I don't want to try. But at that stage in my life, Lord, give me the strength and the ability to continue to do something. Should you keep me on this planet that long and you don't return yet, I want to do something like that. I want to go into chaplain ministry. I want to go into prisons. I want to talk to people that everyone has discarded. And I want to say Jesus loves you just as much as he loved other people. And then you could say, wow, that's pretty noble. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I'm not you. Whatever God's going to ask you to do, you should do. But can I tell you, whether you're old or you're young, whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor, all of us who have Christ are rich. All of us who have Christ are rich. There are young children that need mentoring in this church. There are teenage boys that have been growing up without fathers. Can I tell you? You don't have to look cool. You don't have to be hip or awesome. And I'm using all the ridiculous words because I'm 50 and I don't have the relevancy of a young person. You know what they need? They just need people who love them. People who show them they matter. The person down the road from your home right now, if they don't know Jesus, you don't have to know every chapter and verse of scripture. You just need to bring them banana bread. You know what I'm talking about? Now, don't take that literally. I mean, maybe. You don't need to do something specific. You just need to love them. And the posture of our heart, if we're not careful with our fear, is that we let nobody in and we let nothing out. But when our heart posture is opened before God, whatever he chooses to give us, he can funnel through us to other people. Make sense? So important for the church. I can't tell you today how so important that is. Every day, obviously, it matters. In the world that we live in, it matters. But if we want to live a life that is moving in a direction that God can always say, well done, my good and faithful servant, we have to maintain this mindset that his return is coming quickly. How do I know that? Because every New Testament writer made reference to it. 
Every New Testament writer referenced it. The Apostle Paul, with regarding marriage, said, because of the situation that he's looking at, here's how you should handle marriage versus remaining single. Why? He says, because our time is short, 1 Corinthians 7. The writer of Hebrews and the writer of James both said we were living in the last days. Peter said the end of all things is near. Isn't that encouraging? (laughs) The end of all things is near, he said. Here's why that's encouraging. Because it's not the end of all things. The end of all things is near means it's the beginning of the greatest thing. That's what he's talking about. It's a mindset shift. Jude, he wrote one chapter and it made it into into the Bible. One chapter, you know what he said? We're in the last times. It made it into one chapter. And Revelation, John said in Revelation 22, reminded us that Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. Be mindful of this this morning, church. Be mindful of this as you walk today and you walk through these days because there is a beautiful treasure on the other side when we open our hearts to what God wants to do. Our worship team is going to come this morning. And I want to read one more scripture from you from Revelation chapter 21. When people talk about the end of the world, we can look at it from two different perspectives, just like I said Peter could have. It could be the end of all things, or it could be the beginning of the greatest thing. Now, both of them are true. But as the church of Jesus Christ, the end of all things is necessary so that we can begin the greatest of all things. And that is a relationship with Jesus that never perishes, that never ends, where there is no sickness, no death, no suffering. That is the place where it ends. And in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, John speaks to the last vision that he had that wraps up the whole passage. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Isn't that an incredible image? He's making all things new, and this new city is coming down. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. If you struggle with what could happen when Jesus returns and all of the things he said, remember, it's not intended for his church. If we know Christ today, whether we're living or whether we die, when we know Christ today, it is not reserved for his church. He comes back for his church And when he comes back for his church, he comes to bring us into his presence for the redemption that he promised through his Holy Spirit. Why? Because there is a new heaven and a new earth that he is getting ready to rebuild and recreate. And we all get to be a part of that when we follow Jesus. Isn't that something that we should hang our hats on with confidence? That we're not confident in ourselves. We're confident in the love and the word of Christ. That he comes back for us to walk in relationship with him for now and forever. I asked the worship team if we would close today with a very familiar old hymn. And we're going to sing the first couple of verses together and then the last one, if you know the song, you probably know the last verse. Let it touch your heart. Let it speak to you this morning, please. 
so that you can be encouraged to know as we draw closer to the end of all things, it just means that we're closer to the beginning of the greatest thing.